Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'm really glad to be here. I hope I can live up to that that, that, that uh, introduction. And you know what? He told me I was going to be speaking last. And uh, when I was here last time, a couple of years ago, I was worn out by this time. And in fact, I didn't stay to listen to the last speaker. And I was kind of hoping half of y'all would be gone. But <laughs> here we go. I'm Jim, and I'm a sexaholic. So... And that's that's the start of my talk. It's it's so important for me. Denial denial creeps through me, through every fiber of my being. Um, I still wonder what's normal, or I want to be normal, or or it's okay if I do this because normal guys do that, or normal, you know, whatever. And um, when I hear myself say, "I'm Jim and I'm a sexaholic," if if I'm at a meeting. And I don't say another word. I've, if I've heard myself say that, I've gotten something out of that meeting, and probably, maybe even enough, you know, maybe even enough for that for that total meeting just to hear my myself say who I am and what what, what, what my name is and who I am. Um, I have a kind of a theme that's going to run through my my story today. And it's um, something I read a few years ago, and it's just kind of like been a been a big deal for me. And I and I want to and, and I'm going to be reading a couple of things too. I mean, I'm you know I'm going to talk some, but I've got some stuff here I'm going to read. But this the theme for my talk, or the theme for my recovery, is this: Do not be deluded, or, or do not be confused. Knowledge of a path is no substitute for putting one foot in front of the other. And that's, I mean, that's been huge for me. When I first, when I first came to meetings, I'm a recovering alcoholic drug addict, and I started, my first treatment center was in uh, 1981 in Jackson, Mississippi. And I saw those steps up on the wall, and I said, well, I, okay, look. Yeah, I'm powerless, I'm messed up, and I believe in God, and I could, yeah, 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 and I'll tell somebody, and, and so I kind of took the steps right off the wall, just like that, you know, so I know, so, okay, I know what this deal is about, you know, that's psychologically sound advice, and maybe it's going to probably help me, and I understand it, and so there, and, and uh, so, you know, it's kind of like I can, I want to I make an A in this course, and, uh, if I can, if I can have knowledge of what I'm fixing to do, then uh, maybe maybe everything will be all right. Well, that didn't work for me. Uh, it took me years. I stayed sober in AA for 19 years, and then because of my sex addiction, I relapsed. And uh, after 19 years, and. Um, 
it took me from 2002 until 2006 to get sober, hopefully, in SA. I mean, I'm, I've, been, I've, been, I've been absent for, for, for 13 and a half years. I'm a treatment center junkie, too. Um, I started going to treatment in 1981 when I was in trouble with alcohol and drugs. I went to treatment in Jackson, Mississippi for a three-month deal, and then that didn't last, and then I went to treatment again in 83, and that lasted for a while, and then I started acting out sexually. I started started getting in trouble acting out sexually. I started acting out sexually before, but I started getting in trouble acting out sexually in 1996. That was my first essay meeting was in 1996 when I was in another treatment center, and my sobriety date is 2006. So I got 10 years there of, uh, of bouncing around. And then, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll tell, let me tell my story the way I got it. I got it uh, written down here. This, these are my notes. Uh, so I come, I come from an alcoholic, addicted, sex addicted family. Um, my mother divorced my father when I was 10 and he was an alcoholic. And not until I was in treatment in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 2005, did my sister kind of come out of the closet and tell me that my father, and this is my half-sister, so my father, who was her stepfather, would come home drunk and molest her in the bed next, in the room next, next to where I slept. And that went on for some years. And she never told anybody about it. And our mother was still alive. And she, she said, you cannot tell anybody about this until mother's gone. And mother's gone now, so it's okay. Um, but, <clears throat> so... I was in. I, I learned all this when I was in treatment at, at General Path in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And uh, Patrick Carnes, I don't, I don't know if any of y'all have ever been through treatment there, but but you pay a whole lot of money, and you get 15 minutes with Patrick Carnes. <laughs> My 15 minutes with him, he said, you know what that that going on in your house had had something to do with you, whether you knew about it or not. Um, and that was the first time I ever, you know, ever thought about that. Um, he also, t he told me a lot of stuff in that 15 minutes. I guess he's really pretty good. Uh, he told me, I'm a, I'm a physician. And uh, he told me, he said, you need to find another amount of work. And I, God, I hated hearing that. I did not want to hear that because I was in treatment to save my license. You know, that was my whole big deal. I've gotten in trouble, and you're going to hear about that. I'm, I'm kind of rambling, getting, getting ahead of myself. But, but uh, I mean, it was, you know, my whole life was, my whole life has been, you know, since I was 15, I started working toward getting a medical license, and then I got one, and then I've been working toward keep, keeping it. Uh, <laughs> until 2005, when I finally lost it forever. And that's, been, and that's another, and that's part of my story too that maybe I'll get to. So, um, so I had an absent mother. My father was gone, and my mother was uh, she's the, she's the smartest person in our family, and she was going to school. She 
She uh, got her GED and bachelor's and master's and PhD all within six years. And and so she wasn't at home. And so my, I was 12, you know, around 12 years old. And so I was kind of grazing myself. My, my little brother and I were just kind of stumbling through life because she was so busy doing this and trying to keep things together and make, make an okay life for us that she wasn't, <laughs> that she wasn't present. And it, and it really it really affected me. Um, I moved to, uh, anyway, when I was 15, I started having sex, and I started with, uh, with masturbation. Pornography came in the mail at that time. It didn't come on this. Um, and I used, I used some of that, and I started having sex. Um, and part of my story I'm going to tell you about now, and I really don't like to talk about this, is uh, getting girls pregnant and having abortions. And that's over my lifetime, that's happened three times. And, you know, I wasn't I wouldn't emotionally prepared to, to, to feel the feelings around what, what, what was going on. Um, again, I mean, it wasn't the most abnormal thing in the world. I mean, it was rare, but friends got girls pregnant and got abortions in my in my circle. And I mean, it just happened, and so uh, and so that happened with me on uh, three different occasions between uh, till I got sober. Um, I already told you all about alcohol and drugs. Alcohol came into my life very early, and drugs. Um, I just love drugs a lot. My father was an alcoholic. Uh, I was a party guy. I thought I wanted to go to medical school. I uh, partied too hard and didn't really very, make very good grades. And so I couldn't get in medical school. So what, if, what do you do if you can't get in medical school and you really like drugs? You go to pharmacy school. <laughs> so so I, it was pretty easy to get in pharmacy school in 1972. I called down to Ole Miss and I said, you know what? I got this grade point and I got this many hours. And they said, come on down. <laughs> Fill out, fill out the paperwork later. And that, and that, that seriously about, about it. Well, I went to pharmacy school, and I love pharmacy school. I did well in pharmacy school. I uh, did a whole lot of did a whole lot of drugs in pharmacy school, but but I had found had found uh, amphetamines, and I knew that I could play and party as long as I kept some of this stuff. I mean, I could take this the night or two before the test. And I can and I can get get by. I can pass my test, and I can still live my life, and not have to not have to study all the time. So I got through pharmacy school pretty good, and one of my professors in pharmacy school had an end in, in, in about getting students into medical school, and so so I went straight from medical school up to pharmacy school. Um, I uh, practiced medicine in a small town in West Tennessee. And, you know, at this point, I've gotten, I've gotten my, I've left a lot of that out, but I've gotten several girls pregnant. I've had, I've caused abortions. Um, I finally married one of them and I've got, and I've got, I've got three daughters, but, but one of them, one of them is 50, 51, um, as a product of getting my high school girlfriend pregnant. And we married, and, and she lives here. She's going to take me out to dinner tonight. 
she's got her PhD in psychology and she does eating disorders. So, so the so the deal kind of the addictive deal kind of passed through her and she had, you know, she was bulimic and she got she got treated and got over it. Now that's what she does for a living. Um, so I don't know what happened in my practice of medicine. I was in AA and I was and I was you know kind of going to meetings and working steps a little bit and and had a spiritual program a little bit and for some reason there was there was years that I didn't that I didn't act out I didn't have sex outside of my marriage I didn't you know might have had lustful thoughts but um, but I didn't act on it I didn't get in any trouble well in 1996 you know I used to I used to say and my sponsor, Steve S. from Memphis, slapped me around about this. I, I used to say that this girl got me started with my sex addiction, and that's just not right at all. <laughs> I started grooming this girl for a year or two, and we ended up having sex in my office one day, and that's what, that's what activated the sex addiction that I know today. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't know if any of you can understand it, but that one... That one Thing having sex with her in the office during <laughs> during the day, I, it just it just it just flipped a switch in me, you know. Um, I uh, I needed to I needed to connect, and 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 it's you know we you hear us say that we got this God shaped hole in our soul that we fill up with sex and drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, and that's exactly that's exactly what it was with me. I. Uh, I needed connect. I needed connection, not the real connection like we know about, but I needed connection. And for a woman to, to, for me to be able to flirt or come on to a woman or whatever, and her to say yes or accept me, I mean that was just the connection that, that just it worked for me for a minute. Uh, I mean I hated it after it, but but and, and the deal is is that I didn't really have to have intercourse. All I had to do was get yes, we can. If I could get a yes, we can from a woman, that's that's really. I mean, I, I I've got what I need, and um, uh, and that's and that's the story of of, of that part. Um, I got uh, I started getting in trouble though. You know, I was you can't you can't you can't do what I was doing and not somebody not talk about it or somebody not complain or somebody whatever. And uh, I had. Lawyers and patient reports, and I and I got and I got. I'm I'm of this mind. I've already been to treatment for alcohol and drugs twice in my life, and I'm of this mind that when the rough when the going gets rough, you go to treatment. <laughs> and that's, so so I so I'd already been to treatment twice for A and D, and now in 1999 I went to Manager Clinic and went to a treatment center in Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas. For a month for uh, for sex addiction, and um, yeah, it's just like I just wasn't ready. I mean, you know, I'd gotten in trouble. I'd gone through this, um, so maybe it'll be different now. And uh, and and it wasn't really different now. So, but but I managed and struggled and went back into practice. I didn't, you know, I didn't wasn't in a whole lot of trouble. And but but I continued to act out, to flirt, to 
do everything I can. Have I only got 10 minutes left? Y'all, I hadn't even talked about the stuff I want to talk about yet. Um, anyway, I went through treatment in 99. I went through treatment at Patrick Corn's place that I was telling you about earlier in 2005 because I continued to get in trouble. And at this time, they said, um, you need to surrender your license. And um, it was just, that was a killer. Uh, so I surrendered my license. You know, they said, if you don't surrender them by 5 o'clock today, we're coming after them tomorrow. That's, that's, that's the kind of surrender I did. Uh, I surrendered my license, and then, and then I, you know, I was, I was a whole lot better. I was making some progress, but I wasn't, perfect, I wasn't perfect and I wasn't sober. And I went, a year later, I went to, for an evaluation at Sante in, in uh, I said, Denton, Texas, Argyle, Texas. For, uh, for an evaluation to get my license back. And I met my nemesis. Uh, and it was a, a lie detector test. So I, you know, I was jumping through these hoops and but they hooked me up and they, they said, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna advocate for you to get your license back. In fact, why don't you stay here for a while? And so I went for a three day evaluation and I stayed five months. I have not found it necessary to take a drink or a drug or a mood altering woman since 71106 after entering that treatment center and five months treatment. For any of you guys that are slipping, five go five months. <laughs> it, uh, it made a difference for me. I, I'm just not the kind of guy, I, I really appreciate anybody that can come in off the street, go to a meeting, stay sober, and, and do well. And I can't, I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't my deal. So I'm a chronic relapser from 99, I mean, from 96 to 2006, uh, I relapsed. And so I have a real heart for the, for, for uh, chronic relapsers, a, a real heart for them. Um, I met my sponsor, Steve, in, in 2007, and he had come from Nashville back to his home in Memphis and started SA meetings. And I said, Steve, we've already got this other S group over here. Why are you starting a new one? He said, because I'm a member of SA. You know, I didn't really get that at that time. Now I know exactly what the deal is, but I didn't understand at that time why he would go to that trouble. Um, coming back out of treatment, I was full of shame. I had suicidal ideations. I wanted to die. I knew where my gun was every day. Um, but I just didn't do it one day at a time. And I just didn't act out one day at a time. And uh, it, it came to a point where I started to surrender. And let me read, and this is gonna go over. Let me read just a little bit about surrender that, I, that just passed through my eyes this week. And it's actually it's on page uh, 86 through 88, I'm not, but I'm going to read only a little bit. Joining a group doesn't automatically make the problem vanish. Most of us have tried stopping countless times. The problem was we couldn't stay stopped. We had never surrendered. So the first time the craving hits again, when we get that urge for a fix, we give it up even though it feels like we give it up. We don't do it, even though it feels like we'll die. I mean, the, the first part of surrender is just not, just say no. I mean, just not doing it for one day. Um, I'm growing as long as I am not acting out one day at a time. As soon as I give in and I act out, I lose, I'm, I'm st I stop growing. Um, 
We begin to see that there's no power over the craving in advance. We have to work this as it happens each time. Therefore, each temptation, every time we want to give in to lust or any other negative emotion, is a gift toward recovery, healing, and freedom. Um, I just, like I said, I have a real heart for the chronic relapser. And um, what I needed and what I give to the people that, that I work with that are relapsers is I love them. I don't say, you know what, you do that one more time, boy, and I'm not going to sponsor you anymore. That's just not, that's not me. Uh, I love them. And I say, you know, maybe maybe it's not working out for us. And if you want to go somewhere, I'll do that, you know, from time to time. But I'm not going to shame a guy that's, that's, that's in that spot. Uh, I just love them back. And I say, dad gum it, we got a bad disease, don't we? And then I, and I, and I just try and tell them about my story more. And... Uh, make them feel like there's a place for them. Um, service, I want to talk about service. So, I've got a weird story about service. Um, when I was 15, I looked a little bit over and I, and I forced my driver's license to make me look 21. And so how I served at my, my little buddies at that time was I'd go buy beer for them. That was my service. <laughs> now that's funny, but listen to this. That did something to me. That, that, I mean, that made me feel like I was a part, that I was worth something, that I could do something for somebody else, that I could give back. And so I became a doctor. So you know what? Who, who had the drugs? Who had the drugs? I had a lot of friends, and I did not furnish furnish them all kind of drugs. Um, and that's again, that's sick, but but that's uh, that's the way that's the way I did it for a while. Um, in 1980, when VCRs came out, I had two VCRs. Every time I'd rent a movie, I'd copy it, and I'd give it to letting my friends use it. And if somebody say, "Man, I really like that movie you let me borrow last night," that filled me up. Look what I have done for you. I have given you three hours of pleasure. I mean, it's just—it's just my heart. It wants to give back, even in, even sick. Um, then I then I came into the program and I started sponsoring, and I just love to 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 work steps with guys. I'm sponsoring 14 guys right now, and they keep me sober today. God and my sponsees keep me sober today. They call me sometimes. They call me. And they'll say, hey, and I say, hey, wait a minute. I don't know what you want to talk about, but listen to this. And I'll go, boy, all over. <laughs> and, and, then, and then, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get around to why they called before we have to, have to hang up. But it, 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 that's, that's the way it works. I, I just, I love that part of that. <laughs> um I just and and I've you know I've been a treasurer in my in my little group at, in in my little town for a long time and my uh, sponsor six years ago said have you ever thought about being a trustee I don't, I don't even know what a trustee is what are you talking about and so and so I started learning about trustees and and I jumped through the hoops and let me tell you about hoops again God keeps me sober. But what he does is he gives me these hoops to jump through while he's keeping me sober. And the hoops are meetings, sponsees, praying, steps. 
marathons. All those are the hoops. God's just, this is a hoop that He's had me do today while He can, while He's keeping me sober. I believe that. Um, anyway, I have to stay active, but you know, I, I finished my five, my, my four years, four years of being a trustee, and, um, and I really like being, being around the guys. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when I walk into a trustee meeting or I go to a convention. You know what it's like to go to Cheers where everybody knows your name? <laughs> I really like that. And so I'm kind of clamped on to these guys down here. They're going to be my Cheers gang for now for, for a while. Um, I want to read one more thing that came, came to me yesterday. And, um, and then I'm going to stop. It's called The Danger of Arrogance in Dealing with Lust. So, my brother, flee from the fire of lust, for you are gunpowder. And never dare to think in your conceit that you're damp gunpowder, moistened with the water of good and firm will. No, no. Better think that you are dry. And as dry, we will catch fire as soon as we are touched by that flame. Pay attention to yourself and watch over yourself. If you've gained some gift or another from God or find yourself in good spiritual state, do not in your vain glory accept vain illusions about yourself, thinking that you're something, imagining that your enemies would not dare attack you, that you would abhor and despise them so much that you will immediately repulse them if they dare come into you. As soon as you think thus, you will fall as easily as an autumn leaf from a tree. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.